Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life. And today I have with me Tom Padden from Peconic Appraisals. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hello, John. Great to hear you again. Yes. And likewise to see you again. Well, I, I can see you, but nobody can Here's, see you. Nobody else can see, but we can see. We can see. Exactly. Good, good thing they can't see. Right, exactly. And we look handsome, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Radio, we're radio handsome. Exactly. Radio. Radio. I love radio. Anyway, uh, Tom, uh, let's, before we talk about uh, Peconic appraisals, let's talk about you. Um, where were you born? Uh, I was born in Queens, Flushing to be exact, and um, we moved out to Long Island uh, Bay Shore uh, after that when I was very young, and that's where I grew up. Went to Bay Shore High School and then on to Fordham University in the Bronx, and uh, I was with the class of 80. So that's a while ago. Right. And uh, I, uh, I've been doing uh, real estate appraisal. Now it's approaching 20 years. So it, uh, it's amazing how the time goes by. Wow. So let me ask you the question. So uh, before you were doing appraisals, what were you doing? I used to work in uh, contract maintenance, uh, believe it or not. And then, uh, you know, I came east uh, Worked in the construction business with my brother for a time, and then uh, it, which was a good experience because I got a lot to know. I got uh, to to know a lot about uh, building and such, which has helped me tremendously in my practice, obviously. So, uh, but uh, that's how it all started. So I've been uh, doing this with Peconic Appraisal. We operate as Park Avenue Appraisals uh, in New York City, uh, but out here is the fun part to talk about because. So many people from New York have moved out this way, haven't right. you noticed? Yeah, I've noticed quite a bit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you segue from, from what you were doing before into appraisals? I mean, was it like um, a call you know, of a sort? That's a good question. You know, actually, uh, a guy I knew introduced me to it, and he says, you ought to get to go into this. It's really exciting. And at that time, it was uh, the refi boom. Do you remember that back in oh, the early right. 2000s? So we just hit the ground running and it was kind of a, a wild west type of business in those days because, uh, you know, you'd work for a, uh, a company and then they'd send you out as a trainee with uh, not a great deal of training. So you learned a lot of it on your own, uh, which is probably OK, but probably not the best method. But um, uh, in fact, after the debacle in 2008, the industry has been pretty much cleaned up. Uh, as far as that kind of thing is concerned, uh, you know, now they put a lot of restrictions on it. So the uh, certified appraisers have to go out and do all the inspections themselves. Used to be you could send out assistants to do the jobs, but no more. So they, they made it more of a practice than a than a, uh, a big business, let's just say. So, so, so speaking of certified appraisers, what's involved or what's entailed in becoming a certified appraiser? Well, you've got a great deal of education to go through. Uh, 
which they increased the requirements as a result of the 2008 situation. But and in fact, that's really been a detriment to our industry because so many people are now saying, well, why do I want to go into this? It's such a commitment and nobody's going to hire me, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so we've really seen a drop off in the term in terms of the number of uh, appraisers coming in and uh, the average age of appraisers like myself is increasing, you know, so. Uh, you know, I think uh, death and retirement are the biggest uh, nemesis, nemeses, I should say, <laughs> to the uh, to the appraisal industry. In fact, you know, some of the guys I worked with early on, so many of them have passed on. It's really a sad thing to, to see, but uh, true. But um, uh, but I hope I've got a few uh, a few years left. Oh, I'm least. sure you do. But you bring up a good point. How do you how do you get uh, young people to to uh, you know, to, to come into the business. I mean, like you say, there's, well, there's a niche It's there. very difficult. You know, mostly it's uh, because you have a personal connection. For example, an appraiser might have a, a son or relative uh, that is interested in taking it over and that kind of thing. But beyond that, it's very difficult for um, young people or, you know, even older retired people that want to do something else. Uh, to get into the industry, you know, a lot of the schools kind of uh, introduce them to the idea. And then uh, when they get out, it's not so rosy, you know. It's, right. Uh, well, how do you find work? Do you, does somebody, okay, I graduate, uh, get get my license. Can I come to you and say, hey, Tom, can you hire me? Or is that? Uh, I, well, that's that would be the thinking. But uh, the problem with that is most of us have become uh, lone wolves, if you like, you know, where we just work alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too many uh, people working under us. Mostly the commercial houses, you know, the ones that do uh, a lot of commercial work have uh, staffs. But, uh, uh, you know, most of the other guys like myself and some of the women that are, that are in the business, you know, we work alone. Uh, Suffolk County, probably the biggest one is. Uh, Rogers and Taylor, you know, they, they've been around for a long time, but they have a lot of people on staff. And then in Nassau and in the city, obviously, there are other companies that have um, uh, lots of employees or subcontractors, if you like. But nope. uh, most of us out here, particularly my colleagues on the East End, we work, we work alone. Right. You know, I was just thinking maybe because what you're saying is like in the future, there's going to be less appraisers. Because of there it's working that way, right? Uh, that maybe you know, like sur- surveyors to become a surveyor, you have to do an internship. So maybe right. they should have okay, you have to give a year or two years uh, as an appraiser to become you know certified. Or well, like- you do. You have the, uh, the the education is one thing, but then you have the practical experience that you have to you have to oh, keep. A- Oh, sure, you have that. to keep a log of all the work that you've done and then submit it to the state after you've reached the, the required minimum number of hours. So um, I've forgotten what the numbers are now, but it's it's a uh, it's a lot of time. You know, it's a commitment. Let's be honest. It, right. Uh, right. Now, is it is it worthwhile? I mean, is it uh, monetarily worthwhile? Oh, uh, for us, it's getting better all the time because uh, fewer and fewer people are competing with us. So <laughs> I've had some of my best years in the most recently. So um, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, exactly. remember, I remember when the banks were, 
going specifically after saying, okay, this is what we're going to pay. And I, I know I've spoken it. This is going back, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Well, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a matter of supply and demand like anything else. If you have fewer people that can do the work, they can't be too picky. But if you have a lot of folks out there competing with one another, then they, the banks can be more aggressive on their price uh, limitations, let's just say. Right. Now, you do appraisals, you said, also in, in Manhattan. I know one of the things that, uh, again, going back, I've, I've had other, you know, um, on various sales that I've had uh, coming in where the um, I have the buyer and or the case would be that they have to go to the bank and the bank would say, OK, we'll use this appraiser. And then the appraiser would come from uh, up island when I say up island flushing wherever and they have no concept of the market here well that's yeah that's unfortunate that that happens there are uh, so few appraisers on the east end that that often happens and unfortunately a lot of the folks that come from up there want to get back as quickly as possible and perhaps on occasion they don't uh, give it the time necessary and you as a broker often feel the brunt of uh, the lack of attention in that case. Right. But uh, uh, the East End has been uh, very good in terms of activity. I, you know, I just, before we get on, I was pulling some statistics from my research service. And I don't know if you want to talk about it, yeah, but some sure, of these yeah, people. Please. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. I mean, just for example, um, I just pulled year to date, uh, September the 16th of this year versus last year. Just uh, taking the various communities, I didn't touch the North Fork because, uh, uh, you know, that would be more research for me to do. But I just stuck on the South Fork. Um, East Hampton, for example, the median increase from the prior year was 45% median sale price. Unbelievable. 45%. Yes. For example, the median sale price... Yeah, but that's uh, high and low, right? So that's well, no, that's the media, that's the mid-range went from uh one million one hundred and eighty-seven thousand. Now, this is for the entire zip code, so it takes into account, you know, down in the estate section plus up in the ah. spring. But um, in any event, uh current median price is one million seven hundred and thirty-two thousand four eighty-eight. That's Forty-five percent plus plus the number of sale increases. We went from five hundred and twenty-six sales the prior year to six hundred ninety-seven. That's thirty-two percent increase in the number of sales, and that's pretty much consistent in the other communities. I looked at Watermill, um, uh, Montauk, Sag Harbor. You know, they're all uh, very high. So, so it's definitely a seller's market. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think you'd have to agree based on your experience that this is a result of people exiting the city and coming into the area. Right. Wouldn't you right. say? Absolutely. You know, it's it's the thing with the uh, remote uh, uh, working from home. That, yes. That's another you know, feat, another yeah, factor. Yeah. I mean, it's like, where would you rather work? Would you, you want to work in the city or would you rather be out here? And it's kind of interesting because now we see... You know, now that the summer season's done um, and we're getting some sort of normalcy, I think it's because a lot of the people have taken their kids back, you know, for their education. But we'll see what happens, you know, in the future. I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, when you look at it in terms of activity and the price increases, uh, I think it's still, at least at this point, it's still hot and heavy. Uh, what's going to happen going forward is another question, and maybe it'll stabilize. We don't know. Right, exactly. Now, let me ask you, how do you um, deal with that? In other words, okay, the price increases. I, I see a lot of, and I'm sure you've seen it too, is um, people are paying above asking price. So how, oh, yeah. How can that you, is, <laughs> how can you put in, you know, how does that, that how do you work that? That really uh, is a, a, a pressure generator on the appraiser because as you know, our primary valuation methodology would be the sales comparison method. And that relies on things that have already occurred versus what's, uh, what the asking prices are, for example. So uh, if we're going to rely on, prior sales, often they're lower than what the people are asking for on, on a particular uh, sale. For example, uh, it might go in for a million and a half, and then it's bid up to 1.8 million. Do we have the sales to support it? Hopefully, but not always, you know, so it comes in short. And what happens is uh, either the deal is bust or they have to come up with more cash. Uh -huh. If you're willing to bid above the price, I say, don't rely on the bank. Make sure you have the money. Gotcha. Well, that's good advice. I, I think that's, that's fantastic. Okay, we have a, uh, just a, um, a, a quick question. You do, you do also Manhattan. So how does, how does that work? Is that like a whole different? Well, I game? just, you know, at some point I uh, decided uh, that it was a good idea to get in there and do condos and co-ops and things ah. like that. And, uh, and that's been good for you. But, you know, that's really uh, tapered off in the, you know, since the pandemic. So I'm really not doing much at all. In fact, I've only done a couple in there in the last uh, year and a half or so. So you know the East End. Somebody wants somebody yeah, to get... Well, touch. that's the thing. You know, uh, yes. The, uh, this is really, this is where the activity is. Uh, and so, so, Tom, how can somebody... I noticed, let me, I'm, this, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how can uh, somebody get in touch with you? Okay, they can reach me at my, the best way is my cell phone, which is 631-466-2074. This is John Christopher for Real Life, broadcasting here in the wonderful village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with us Epic Insurance FEMA expert, Allison Schmidt. Hi, Allison. How are you? Hey, John. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, um, when you have questions about FEMA, who do we go to? Allison, right? That seems to be the case. Yes. <laughs> but before we talk about FEMA and the new guidelines that they have, let's talk about you. Um, you grew up here on the East End, didn't you? I did. I did. I, I grew up in West Hampton and um, I now live with my family in Southampton. So oh. I'm a full timer yeah. like you, John. Yeah. But you must have seen a change over the time. I mean, having grown up, what was it like, you know, like as a kid for you? Well, you know, as a kid growing up here, the first thing I wanted to do was was leave, was go somewhere else because I thought it was, uh, you know, it was, it was boring and slow. And, and uh, 
but you know what? So, and it was obviously just much quieter, but, but I mean, there's just nowhere else at this point. I've certainly realized there's nowhere else that I, I would want to live other than the East end of Long Island. It's really just a great place to live. So it is, it is. Now, did you spend any time anywhere else before coming back? Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to um, college in Manhattan and then worked there for a bit and then came back out. Oh, okay. So now you're the expert on FEMA. So tell us what is FEMA? Sure. So FEMA is, you know, our federal emergency management agency. They oversee um, basically the national flood insurance program, which is, you know, traditionally how um, homeowners or business owners would access flood insurance in the past or or, or still to this day. But but, um, uh, FEMA basically set up the National Flood Insurance Program in 1968 because um, private insurers didn't want to get you know, mixed up in flood insurance because they didn't see it as, as a profitable risk. So the federal government had to had to step in and, you know, and, and set up a program where people could access flood insurance because, again, the private insurers just, you know, didn't want it, didn't feel they could make any money on it. So. Understood. So they have designations, right? Like X, uh, what can you sure, explain sure. some of um, that? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, every home or property um, is going to have a flood zone associated with it. Uh, You know, typically we see three main zones um, uh, uh, here and some other places in the country, they they can can see some different zones. But um, we have our X zones, which those are are preferred risk areas, um, areas where you're going to be, it's very unlikely that flooding would occur. Um, so, and, and a mortgage company actually wouldn't require that, that, that homeowner even carry flood insurance, um, for a home in, in a low risk zone. And then we see our higher risk. So no, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're saying like, if you're in an X zone, uh, the bank won't say you have to have flood insurance. Exactly. Yeah. So there will be no um, uh, mortgage requirement to carry flood insurance, you know, John. But with that being said, um, I can't tell you in the last 10 years how many people we are seeing have losses from flooding um, in these lower risk zones. So, and I'll, and if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, Oh my gosh, if my house floods, you know, we're all, we're all dead or, or, you know, no one's going to be rebuilding if my house was to flood, but we're, we're definitely seeing homes that, you know, are located in these lower risk zones flooding because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not only rising tidal water, it's rising groundwater as well. So, you know, really rising groundwater, that can happen anywhere. Right. So in other words, uh, somebody that's in that zone, uh, for example, it doesn't have to be the uh, the rain coming from the outside or the flooding come from the outside. It could come from underneath. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yep. And, and, you know, just with, with um, uh, the tropical storm Henry that came through, you know, that, that caused, and even Ida as well, you know, caused a lot of flooding in, in non-coastal areas that, 
you wouldn't have have expected flood losses to happen. So, um, you know, so again, we're seeing these lower risk properties flooding more now than than they ever have before. So, can you get FEMA outside the uh, the zones? In other words, um, I had a friend recently in Jersey, and they are not covered. Um, their basement, they had to spend over like close to a hundred thousand because they had totally finished uh, and furniture, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So, so you can. Now, really what it comes down to is, is your community a participating community? So once in a while, I will come across a location where the community actually isn't participating. It's very rare, um, but you know, there are, if, if you're not in a participating community, you know, there's, you can get creative and figure out how, you know, how to get coverage for flood, but it really comes down to is the community participating, um, which, you know, in, in most of Nassau and, and Suffolk, uh, we're participating communities. So it wouldn't be a problem there. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So now FEMA has a new, uh, rating methodology. Uh, sure. How does it differ from how flood insurance was rated in the past. Yeah. Okay. So, so FEMA has, uh, you know, and this took years to roll out this new change, which uh, the National Fund Insurance Program is calling risk rating 2.0. And for for new policies, this all went into effect on um, October first, twenty twenty one. Uh, renewal policies, policies that are in force today, those won't be impacted until April 1st of 2022. Um, So, you know, first thing is, let's remember, FEMA hasn't changed how they rate flood insurance since 1976. So it was extremely outdated. So now what they're trying to do is, of course, you know, charge rates that they think are more reflective of the actual, uh, of, of whether or not the property is actually going to flood. So they're using, um, obviously, you know, so we have so much more technology at our hands now. They're using different mapping systems and geocoding um, and, 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 you know, just, just using all this new technology that they didn't have in 1976 to, to properly, you know, capture um, the, the, the probability of the property flooding and what the rate should actually be. So FEMA feels that, you know, they've been under uh, underpricing flood insurance um, for years now. So basically what they're trying to do is uh, have the rates become, be more reflective of what the true risk is. So they're also, what they're doing is they're starting to use things that they use data that they never used before to, to calculate the rate. So um, they're using things now like distance to the flooding source. And what is the flooding source? You know, is it bay, ocean, rivers? Um, that actually, funny enough, wasn't used before. You know, traditionally in the past, they rated it on the, the zone um, and, and um you know, how the home was constructed. So of course those things are still going to matter, but they're going to use, 
like I said, you know, distance to water, actually the replacement cost of the home could now drive the cost of, of, um, of the insurance. So, you know, if you have a house that costs $500,000 to rebuild, as opposed to a home that is going to cost you 10 million to rebuild, the price for flood insurance for that $10 million home is now going to be more than that $500,000 home, which, you know, makes sense to me. Right. Um, But it was like what you were saying before, it was like universal. In other words, yeah, it was, it was. If you were in an X zone, you pretty much your neighbor would pay the same amount, but exactly. And now that's, you know, cause we're really just starting to, to see these new rates come in. And that's actually very interesting is, you know, we've traditionally in the past, these preferred risk rates, they were the same across the board. And now, you know, some are going down, some are going up. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, even impacting those those lower risk uh, uh, zones as well. And then, you know, when it comes to those higher risk zones, the A zones, the B zones, where the mortgage company is going to require um, coverage, you know, those are, some are going down, some are going up. So, oh, so it's not just a, a cross the board increase. No, it's not. Interesting. Um, so it's going to completely depend on, uh, you know, how, well, a lot of things, a lot of things. Um, but, you know, prior, they're going to also charge for prior claims now, too. So, you know, if you have a property that has had severe repetitive claims, that rate is going to be different than a home that hasn't actually had any flooding losses in the past. It's like um, having a car, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to, you know, if you're bad risk, they're going to, they're going to attack you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny. Um, what happens to the people with the, uh, their existing policies? Yeah. So existing policies that are going to, will be impacted, like I said, April of 2022, um, some are going to go up, some are going to go down. Now, if you, um, if you are someone whose policy is going to go down, you're going to see that decrease in premium immediately. Um, If you are someone whose policy is going to go up, there are certain statutory caps that that they put in place. So you're not going to see an increase of more than 18% a year. Um, So so until that true risk rate is reached. So, you know, it does protect the people whose rates are going to go up. So you're not going to see more than that 18%. uh, Interesting. So in other words, the premium, it's not going to double. Well, it could, it could double eventually, eventually. in five years, yeah, right. but not, not year one. Um, and, you know, I was actually just looking through some figures about, because they kind of break it down by state and, and, and all of that for us. So in New York, about one third of policyholders rates will go down and two thirds will, will go up. So um you know, there's, again, we, we haven't seen it all play out, but, but, you know, there's a good chance that a lot of these coastal homes will, will see an increase. We'll see an increase, yeah. right? But yeah. you're saying that come April of uh, 2022, uh, will it be like, uh, you'll know your rate, your premium? 
before then? Should, yeah, by well, well, for for those renewals that are you know around the time as the year goes on, you know, we'll see more renewal rates, but you won't be impacted until your policy actually renews. So if the new rates go into effect April first, but you don't renew till July, you're not going to see a change in your rate until July. Until I bet our audience has more questions for you. Um, how can they reach you, Allison? Sure. Okay. So um, my um, direct line is 631-702-8514. And my, you can always reach me, of course, by email, which is allison.schmidt at epicbrokers.com. Great. Allison Schmidt, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher from Real Life Broadcasting here in the lovely village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. If you'd like to hear this program again or other podcasts, go to WLIW.org slash radio. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to have an awesome journey. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM. Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.